0: Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I think you will find this conversation today to be really helpful, and I know this comes up all the time for those of us that see teenagers. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Alderman. Dr. Alderman is a professor of pediatrics and obstetrics, gynecology, and women's health at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore Albert Einstein College of Medicine and is the Chief Division of Adolescent Medicine at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore. She is also the Director of the Postdoctoral Fellowship in Adolescent Medicine. She is past Program Director of the Pediatric Residency Program and is the founder of the Montefiore Adolescent Primary Care Initiative. She received her Bachelor of Science degree from Cornell University and MD degree from the State University of New York at Stony Brook Medical School. Dr. Alderman completed her residency and adolescent medicine fellowship at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore Medical Center. Dr. Alderman is the chairperson of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Adolescence, is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics in New York Chapter 3, is the past president of the North American Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, and former member at large of the Board of Directors for the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. She is co-editor of the AAP Textbook of Adolescent Healthcare. Dr. Alderman has authored 65 research papers, review articles, and chapters, and has presented over 40 abstracts at national meetings, and delivered over 50 lectures and workshops in the past five years at regional and national meetings. Clearly, Dr. Alderman comes with so much experience, and I so appreciate her joining us today. Please welcome Dr. Alderman. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Leah? I'm great. Thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate you and I appreciate all the work you do. I think adolescent health is a really important topic for pediatricians. I mean, we're supposed to be the jack of all trades, you know, from infants to young adults. And this topic about confidentiality is, you know, something we deal with every day. But definitely, before we dive into that, just if you could share a little bit with listeners about your journey into pediatrics and why teenagers.
1: Sure. I love, I love talking about this. So I spent my adolescence. I grew up in the wonderful borough of Brooklyn, New York. My father was a teacher, high school principal eventually. My mother was an educational paraprofessional in a high school, also. So I always had great role models of people, particularly my parents and teachers who I experienced in the New York City public school system, who work with adolescents. But I went into medicine. I decided to apply to medical school really to pursue a career in women's health. I had a pivotal experience as an undergrad at Cornell, working in a contraceptive gynecology clinic. And I definitely thought I was going to be an obstetrician gynecologist when I started medical school. And in my travels, uh, the non-clinical years, I did research in genetics with the genetics counseling group and at fans locations. And I was working with OBGYNs and I really loved it. But then when I started my clinical rotations, which I loved every single one of them, I loved OBGYN. But I realized I was not a surgeon. And the best part of the OBGYN rotation was outpatient gynecology. And I did like when I did like obstetrics, but I sort of gravitated towards the babies and the warmer in the delivery room. And I got to pediatrics later in my third year as my next to last rotation. And within a day of the rotation, I realized that I wanted to be a pediatrician. I loved working with all different ages of children. I loved interacting with the parents, the pediatric residents, and the other pediatricians who taught me. General pediatricians, specialists, were my kind of people. And so I decided to pursue a career in pediatrics and match to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore program. But I actually thought I was going to be a geneticist because I had that experience not only in medical school working with the medical geneticist who was in the department of OBGYM, but also in college, I was a genetics major. But within a few months of my pediatric residency, I realized that I loved working with adolescents. I loved talking to them. I loved taking care of them because they require the expertise of a pediatrician, a, a gynecologist. A uh, mental health geared person, you know. So I love my psychiatry rotation, and also internal medicine because there were, you know, uh, certain diseases that our patients had that required that expertise. And uh, I also had, again, great role models in the division of adolescent medicine here at the Children's Hospital of Montefiore. So I decided to pursue adolescent medicine, and I've never looked back. Every day is interesting. I work with wonderful teenagers, young adults, and their families, colleagues who are committed to our patients and to advocacy. I didn't realize how advocacy would play such a role in my career, teaching. So that's my journey in a nutshell. So it all came back to those years in Brooklyn that were the formative years for me as an adolescent. And here I've been for over 30 years.
0: Well, I can definitely hear your excitement and enthusiasm about teenagers. I did a really fun podcast with Dr. Ken Ginsberg about teenagers. And after doing the interview, I was like, "Eh, I could have done a better job (laughs) with my own. And I think, you know, sort of that cultural dread about the teenage years. And he's like, we need to flip that on its head that this is a time of incredible exploration and this huge brain development. We should be excited. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes and his book too about congratulations, you're having a teen or something.
1: Absolutely. I mean, my kids are grown up. They're young adults. Well, they're not, they're adults, you know, 20 and 31. I don't think they would mind that I disclose. But um, I was someone who um, relished in those years. And I tried to speak with my friends who feared those years. And in the midst of the years, just to say you never stop being a parent. Actually, it's even more important during the teenage years. But to remember, there's the need for individuation. There's the need to let them fly and see them fall sometimes so that they can learn how to be adults. Right. And you still get to be a parent when your children are adults, but the rules are different. Completely,
0: You're hoping you set them up, but they still need us. Well, I think on that note of individuation kind of fits perfectly into our topic about adolescent confidentiality. And, you know, I think as providers, I don't know that we're scared, but there's like this, what's the line? What's the line of what I tell to a parent, what I don't? How do I honor this teen? and? Make it possible for them to share, you know, their sexuality or their substance use so that I can help them where a parent might not be able to do it in the same way because they might not even tell their parents. And yet, how do I support the parents who obviously have a vested interest in their child? And then we have, you know, these new laws about what we put in charts and how information gets shared. So maybe we could just start with talking about confidentiality laws and what information shared about the 21st Century Cures Act. And let's start there.
1: Sure, Leah. Confidential health care is the cornerstone of much of what we do when we take care of teenagers. And when we talk about confidential care, I'm going to frame it in our patients who are under 18 because patients who have the ability to make decisions who are 18 and older are afforded the same rights of confidentiality as adults in all states. And then there are federal laws such as HIPAA, which you know, get into that quite a bit. So I'm going to focus on the under 18 crowd, as I usually call them. And they comprise a significant group in the care that pediatric healthcare care providers Family medicine docs, you know, internal medicine docs, they're seen by and, and other types of healthcare care providers and practitioners um, that we see. And due to the normative development and developmental milestones, they may be participating in activities such as, you know, sexual activity or dabbling in substance use, alcohol use have mental health concerns, I mean, that's a whole other topic in terms of COVID-19 and the increase in that, where they may not be comfortable speaking to their parents or their guardians or a trusted adult. And I always start off when I bring up that part of the visit by introducing the fact that this is healthcare information. I'm not trying to pry into your personal life. I'm not making judgments. And I usually start actually at the age of 11 to bring up the topic of confidential care with the parent guardian and the patient, because actually the 11 year old visit is a big one with vaccines and a lot of people come up for that visit. So I just frame it that, you know, the next visit, there will be likely time alone with your pre-adolescent to talk about things that they may or may not be doing with their friends or concerns that they might have that I encourage you to bring up with them, but I will be bringing these things up with them to discuss, you know, these types of topics such as, you know, activities they do with their friends, puberty, potentials around reproductive health care that they may not feel comfortable speaking to you about as a parent or guardian, but If your child's life is in danger or someone else's life is in danger, or I'm seriously concerned that you need to be involved as a parent, then you will know about this. Of course, letting your child know I'm going to be discussing this with Um, And, you know, as I mentioned and as you mentioned, Leah, the categories usually are sexuality. We call sex drugs and rock and rolls, you know, whether they're involved in any type of physical relationships or any type of relationships, mental health and substance use. And every state has different laws about this and actually a really good website to check out to find out what your state laws are. And I say yours to the audience (laughs) of the podcast is the Alan Guttmacher website in terms of reproductive health care, because that's where, you know, things are different among states. I mean, even with substance use laws and mental health, that also is based on state law. So knowing the state law definitely guides what I can keep confidential or not. And I say that to the parent and the adolescent. And I repeat my spiel every year or every time I see uh, an adolescent, you know, because we always encourage having a long time with the adolescent, even if I see um, an adolescent for an ear infection. I definitely want to know if she has had her period in the last month. Because if she hasn't, I may not get into our whole period history, but perhaps she hasn't had her period, but she might be pregnant. And I would like to help her if, you know, figure out her options and everything, if she possibly is. And that's important information for me to know even because she has a medical problem of an ear infection because I might be prescribing medication that it wouldn't be advisable. So I definitely recommend, if possible, doing an assessment, uh, what we call a HEADS assessment, you know, home, education, activities, the D is drugs, suicide assessment. And, you know, to do that at every visit, just to get a sense of the life of the adolescent. Again, I know it's not always possible, but it's important. Well, and I like that idea of sort of framing
0: this up, teeing it up, if you will, like when they're younger. So this isn't a surprise to anybody. And I think Ken really talked about some nice language, you know, that you're essentially partnering with the parent to promote their independence so that they do make good decisions and that you're supporting them. It's not like you're having these big secret conversations. Do you get much pushback from parents? I think a lot of I, I don't know, like our staff are like, how am I supposed to say this? Like, you can't come in. <laughs> you know, how do you frame that? And, and have you had parents
1: that are like, nope, I'm coming in? That's a really good question. As I mentioned, I bring this up at every visit so i you know the first introduction is the 11 year old visit or you know the first visit that i am seeing the the patient at so it might be a little older um because the visit consists of the time together the parent guardian with the pay with the adolescent uh patient with the teen and then the separate times and i do also offer a time separate for the parent if they wish but you know Bringing this up at every visit, explaining the parameters where I would definitely disclose information if safety were a concern, or I'm a mandated reporter related to child abuse, as we all are in our state. So uh, reassuring the parent that if their child's life was in danger, it's a serious concern, they would be brought in. And again, that is all based in health. And again, to review the heads, because I left out an important part, it's home education, activities, drugs, suicidality, and sex.
0: Of course, there's that, right? Right. <laughs> Thank right. you for adding yes, that. Yes. Well, I, so in that vein, you've set the stage for confidentiality. And then I think one of the things that tripped me up a lot was how do I have the conversation? How do I document it? How do I protect that? Because I had a teenager one time that came, it kind of said to me, hey, this test is on my after visit summary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't want my parents to know. Now, my parents aren't with me. So, but now that people can go into charts and, you know, there's a whole issue about proxy, you know, portal access, you know, charges that go to parents. So, in trying to secure that confidentiality. What about what about those things? I know that's a huge
1: topic, sure, but sure. And kind of what are the laws around it? Right. So um, first of all, I want to backtrack to the question you asked me before. I actually use the law to explain to some parents if I get pushed back. I don't say it in a lawyerly way like, you know, New York State guarantees these rights, so you need to leave the room. I, you know, I don't say it like that, but I think that knowing your state law, if you if you need to bring that up, certainly could be in a nice way, a way to educate a parent or guardian who might be more adverse to leaving the room. I have to say, I rarely have that problem. And, I, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm so great, but I'm just saying, like, you know, I think having the conversation, having it as a routine part of the visit. It goes a long way and bringing it up at, at a younger age before it might not even be needed, you know, at 11 ish, you know, it sh- certainly helps. But most parents and guardians actually know this. So um how do we guarantee confidentiality? That's a really good question. You know, in the olden days when it was just it was talking to a patient, writing it in a chart. There were concerns if the written medical record needed to be sent somewhere or if the parent wanted a copy of the medical record. But it was easy to have things redacted if they would give given to a parent. And, you know, I say easy, but easier than we have now. In terms of the concerns that come up now, particularly around the electronic medical record, which I know, uh, you know, 21st Century Cures Act creates another layer to that and also medical billing with the Affordable Care Act and people who are over 18 to the age of 26 who are insured by their parents' commercial health insurance. So there are a lot of considerations. Where do you want me to start? Well,
0: I guess I was just thinking, about, and I agree with you what you said about, I think for the most part, parents are actually relieved Mm -hmm. that they know that there's another grown-up who doesn't want their kid to get into trouble or get hurt or to do something that would harm themselves so that we're also the eyes and ears, you know, it's just another layer of care around their child. So I think that is helpful. But to this other is, you know, if we're going to tell a patient, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions and, you know, unless there's some concerns That about your safety, this is between us because I'm your doctor and this is about your health. And then on the after visit summary, it says something about pregnancy testing Mm -hmm. or they get a bill for that. Mm -hmm. So, how do you assure a patient that that is going to be honored? And then with the Cures Act, if the parent has proxy, and for a 12 year old, I mean, it's unusual that the 12 year old is going to be the only keeper of the portal access mm-hmm. which means a parent could go in and read the notes so how do we
1: how do we navigate that right so it's very complicated the first thing is if a healthcare provider can be involved in the setup of their electronic health record system for their practice or their institution because things have to be set up as best as they can to preserve the legal right of confidentiality for the patient. So for example, at my institution, we created a group a long time ago that advocated for uniform healthcare delivery to adolescents within our big medical system. So every time the EHR, you know, when it first started and then it went to a different system and then it went to cures, the group in my medical system that was creating those electronic medical record systems or building it with the companies that they work with came to my this group and said, you're the experts on adolescent health care. What do we need to know to preserve the confidentiality we need to preserve under New York state law um, in our setup. So even before cures, we had mechanisms to suppress certain diagnoses and certain medications in the after-visit summary. And it took a lot of work. You know, this is what was done. Of course, I encourage every healthcare provider to read the after-visit summary before they give it to the patient because things are not foolproof. And, you know, to make sure that things are not in there that the parents should not see. Because in, again, in New York State, adolescents have quite a lot of rights related to confidentiality around reproductive health care, among others. So that was early on. But you know, the 21st Century Cures Act and the whole idea of that is really to give patients access to their health information. But what complicated things, not only for what we call at minor adolescents or adolescents under the age of 18, it's not only they that there are challenges around this, is that who has access to these records through the patient portal generally and systems. Needed to be set up to preserve that privacy. And sometimes the EHR system just did not, does not have that plasticity to segment medical information. So actually, there are a few exceptions where information can be blocked legally. There's a privacy exception and that reflects the fact that in certain states adolescents under 18 are afforded privacy for certain types of healthcare under their state laws. There is also a exception for, and what's the word? Oh, in fee- it's infeasibility, which I mentioned before that segmentation of healthcare information just can't happen with this EHR system. It's not built that way or it, it, we don't have the capability to build it that way. And then there's a preventing harm exception, which also directly is related to adolescent healthcare. So if a provider feels that whoever's reading the information either will be harmed by reading the information. So a patient that I may have with it, you know, that I have with an eating disorder who could see their weight and they don't want to see their weight. This could be triggering. This could be, you know, uh, it's okay to block. Or if a minor, for example, their parent would see it and the minor would worry, I'm going to get thrown out of my house because I came out to my doctor that I'm gay, but my parent is going to throw me out of the house or I'm a minor who is sexually active and I just wanted a chlamydia test, but I had to tell my doctor that I'm sexually active, but my parent is going to, you know, beat me up or even emotional harm could be interpreted in certain ways. So, you know, these are things to consider in taking care of adolescents and preserving confidentiality around. 21st Century Cures Act. Now, in terms of patient portals, there's been a lot written about this lately. First of all, again, the institution or the practice has to work with their EHR vendor and set up, you know, rules around the portal. And even having rules, let's just say people who are 13, between 13 and 17, the only things that could happen are X, Y, and Z. Like the patient could message the proxies, the parent could message. The patient can make appointments. The proxy can make appointments. You know, what has come out, though, is that, and there was a study done in 2020, I believe, and there have been a couple of studies since then, that sometimes we as practitioners think that the adolescent who's 13 or 14, and in my my system or whoever's system, they're the only ones who can have access, and there's a little bit for the proxy, for the parent, but in reality, whose email is linked to the portal? The parent. Right. I mean, there have been a number of studies showing this is pretty pervasive. So when I speak to particularly the 12 to 17 and 364 day crew, I mention if you have patient portal account, please double check. It's your email that's being used. And sometimes it'll come out when I'm talking to a patient a parent oh, you're on the patient portal, you know, you're on the patient portal. And the, the patient who's 15 was, oh, yeah, my, my mother deals with that. Like, whoa, you need to be the prime person and your parent has to be the proxy. Um, and again, different health systems set things up, but they do have to be set up to honors the privacy exception of state law.
0: I'm wondering, so if a parent is a proxy, and maybe this varies by institution, Does that mean that certain information is not accessible? So if I'm a proxy, Mm -hmm. can I read the note or only if I'm
1: the patient? Or does that vary? Right. It depends on the health system. It depends on the state. Let's bring it down to state law. And it depends on the way the system was set up. And the problem is that most systems cannot be so plastic and they cannot segment out. The confidential stuff from the medical stuff. So, uh, you know, a patient who's 15 year old undergoing chemotherapy who's sexually active and, you know, it's almost impossible to tease those out. Um, so have to be set up the right way. And then you, you know, does
0: it have to be an all or none? You know, like, I know we have the opportunity to block this information, you know, so that Mm -hmm. it just, you can't access it, which then you worry about the Cures Act. And the other thing is the documentation. I mean, it's not only for me, when I'm thinking about documentation, it's like, well, what if you pick up the chart when you're seeing the patient on a Saturday You don't know the patient, but you could read my note and know what I'm concerned about or there's issues. Well, if everybody has access to the notes, how do I document in a way that I can convey important information that's important for clinical care? I mean, it's complicated. It's
1: very complicated. I mean, even before cures in our EHR, we had a confidential section that had most of the head's assessment that I mentioned, among other things. And then when the medical record was either printed out or transmitted, that stuff could be suppressed in certain ways. But, you know, that information could be very vital to the next healthcare provider in providing care. And it's not always full, you know, again, there are parts of the EHR, even if you have a confidential section, your assessments and plan. You have to say certain things and that might be right out there. So I do let patients know that, you know, again, we're talking about people under 18 because over 18 and they're competent, they should have the only access that, you know, their orthopedist is going to see my note. Or even I get a referral for reproductive health care from a primary care provider and I have to write a consult letter. What can I put in that consult letter? Or that primary care provider actually, we we're in a healthcare network where they could see the whole EHR. Right. You know, these right. systems. Um, I just want to let you know this is how it's built. I have no control over this. So, you know, and most patients, you know, understand, and especially if you tell them ahead of time, they won't be shocked when they go to their pediatrician. You know, who referred to me and the pediatrician says, Oh, I understand you have an IUD inserted. You know, they won't be shocked that I broke confidentiality. Right. You know, And number one, I, you know, the pe- pediatrician referred the patient to me. And number two, like the pediatrician has this access just by virtue of being part of this healthcare system. Right. Right. I think education goes a long way. Now the question is, what happens if? You know, the patient says, no, I don't want them to know. Right. And that's really tough because the record is very important. And you would hope that other healthcare providers understand the laws around confidentiality. We, in my institution, we do a lot of education around that. And my uh, New York State AAP chapter, we have an adolescent healthcare bill of rights we develop. AAP, again, and a lot of organizations, society that adolescent health. Men- have a lot of educational tools, a lot of educational seminars, but we can't hit everyone. But right. you know, we do as much as we can to educate other healthcare providers, other specialists about what should be kept private or not. Because it would be terrible for them to be the ones to disclose in the pediatric emergency room, you know, that the patient saw me confidentially for an STI check, you know. Right. So, I
0: mean, do you think about that when you're documenting about, I mean, I would think with the Cures Act, we're just more careful, and maybe we should be, that we're not putting anything that's inflammatory, judgmental, subjective, Right. Mm -hmm. family history. I know that there's issue about like if there was maternal substance use exposure, Mm -hmm. that's in the teenage chart. Well, now the teenager knows my mom you know was uh right using heroin during her pregnancy well does mm-hmm. the mom you know so it it's it's so complicated now that things are kind of out there is so if a patient said for example they talk about their sexuality with you and they say i don't want my mom to know that i'm gay do you just mm-hmm. leave that information
1: out of your notes mm-hmm. see i'm in a I'm in a situation where New York State again has rules particularly around reproductive health care, outpatient mental health, in certain respects outpatient substance use. so our portal is set up in a way where actually twelve to seventeen like the notes are not visible ah, because okay. of the lack of segment it's infeasible there's no way to segment things, yeah, so there are a lot of other Things that the patient could see, but and the parent, I I forget the all the rules, but like, you know, but, you know, because of infeasibility, because of New York state law, I'm in a very different situation than my colleagues in other states where actually do not have these state laws protecting minors rights to confidential care for various reproductive mental health or substance use. And therefore, they have other rules around their patient portal and who's the proxy and who else the proxy could see. And the good news is there's a lot of people now working on getting better segmentation, Mm -hmm. working with the EHR vendor. And, uh, you know, there's a whole group of people who are specialists in adolescent medicine who are leaders in that. NASPAG and uh, the North American Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology and the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine came out with a whole statement very quickly about the impact of 21st century cures on adolescent health and the AAP actually endorsed it, so uh, people are working on this because our country has you know fifty states with the uh, different laws, and you know again, the privacy exception may not be acceptable' it, it's not it's not acceptable these states don't have the laws that protect the privacy of the minor
0: well and I I worry a little bit that 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 is getting encroached. I mean, I think you know, and again, not to get into politics too much, but it's the politics of medicine, who's in the room, you know, is it mm-hmm. the patient, the doctor, and the politician, you know, so that what we can and can't say to kids, you know, I mean, there's right. trying to be legislation about what we can and can't teach in institutions that receive public funding, you know, so I worry a little bit, is that going to change, and again, that Somehow that we're taking away parents' rights, and what we're really trying to do is empower the child and make sure they're safe and um healthy, and that really we're doing them a favor. I do think that there's some areas where you know, like if a patient disclosed suicidal ideation, to sure. me that is a it is i'm incumbent immediate In right mhm and but what I would say is to a patient not like is it okay i just would say i must this is an area where i i need to share this information because we need to keep you safe how would you like me to do that do you want to be in the room me Perfect. do you want me to tell them first oftentimes they want me to talk to the parent first Fine. but to give them some power in decision making but then there's things and and this has come up in other kind of seminars with other docs about like cutting so if the cutting that they're doing is not suicidal in nature, it's to relieve angst and, you know, they've done some, to what degree do I need to disclose that? Is that a safety issue? I mean, do you have a
1: stance on, on things like? It's very individual. That top. It was very different individual assessment. Yeah, that's what I would think. But Leah, you bring up a number of excellent points. You know, first of all, we want to encourage teenagers to speak to their parents about different things. And parents empower, and I know Kenny Ginsburg speaks about this, so empowering parents to bring up these, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll with their kids and provide guidance. And so of course we are not looking to extricate parents to take them out of the mix. We're encouraging their, you know, their role is so vital to teenagers and um, so important for the uh, teen parent relationship. But there is also the need to individuate and, you know, navigating the healthcare system is one of the ways that teens can individuate because all of a sudden when they're 18, they can sign consent for surgery. You know, so, It's two-pronged, but we never want to shut out a parent. If a parent isn't harmful, I mean, that's another story. But, you know, starting off by saying, we encourage you to talk to a parent or guardian about this, but, you know, I need to know, is this something that can be disclosed? As you said, there are certain things. If, you know, a patient discloses suicidal, homicidal, I would never just run and tell the parent. I would do exactly what you said and said, listen, I'm very concerned about your safety right now. And this is something that I do need to bring your parent into the conversation and let them know about, but how should I do it? Let's role play. If you want to tell them, like it through a whole role play about how we're going to approach it before we bring the parent in. So, you know, it's very important to provide these services for our teens. But, you know, sometimes there are limits, but involving them in the fact that you won't break the confidentiality without letting them know you're breaking it. Right. Because you are concerned because of safety, because of their health and involving them on how this is going to go when this is disclosed to the parent.
0: Well, and I'm wondering about, and I think I know the answer to this is it depends. So I'm thinking about substance use. So, you know, a teen that says to me, yeah, I've tried smoking marijuana. Sometimes it helps me sleep. Um, You know, am I going to disclose that? It depends. On the other hand, if I had a patient, and I'd love to hear your view on this, that is, you know, using opiates and has a severe addiction or maybe is, you know, tried heroin. I mean, fortunately, those situations in my practice were unusual. But at what point to me, then that becomes a life death situation to say, I'm concerned. I think everybody needs to have Narcan, for example. I mean, what do you have a line on that, too?
1: Yeah, no, I, it's a very complicated situation. The more common thing that I might be working with the teen around is that I drink every weekend. I'm 17 years old, I drink and sometimes I'm drunk or, you know, I had been in many situations that I regret because I drank so much. But it's more about drinking and driving, for example. And I will say, OK, we talked about the fact that if I think your life is in danger or someone else's life is in danger, you know, we need to discuss this further. I want to get you the health care you need. I want you to um, be healthy. I don't want you to die. And I don't want someone else to die. And I know you don't want that either. You know, again, I'm, you know, improvising what I would say. And I'm making it very simplistic. And then bring it to uh, these types of things. You need the support of your parent or guardian in accessing the care that you need to prevent any of these bad outcomes, very bad outcomes.
0: And then... And I'm thinking, I'm imagining, because these are, I mean, these are common things, right? Yeah. And also, you know, I could imagine having a conversation with a parent once I told the kid who's probably mortified or upset, but also, you know, there's some things that worry me. Sometimes there's been drinking and I worry that they might get in a car or drive otherwise. And we need to have this conversation because even though we wish that they weren't doing that, they may be. and how are we gonna do this and have that conversation? And then in some way to pull the patient into that. But you know, it takes some finesse yeah. to be able to have those conversations. And they're hard. And the other very hard. The other conversation I've had a couple of times with parents. And I think the older I got, the more I felt like I could do these because it was like, eh, you know, this is my job, is when parents use um was a problem, a parent's alcohol use to say to the parent, your child is really concerned about your drinking and I'm worried about your drinking. And in fact, I'm worried that maybe, you know, today when you drove here, I'm worried that Mm -hmm. could you possibly have used something? Could you be high? Sure. Sure.
1: Sure. You know, those are really hard conversations, but I've had those before too. Right. I mean, but our overriding goal is to keep our patients and families healthy, um, And as I say, one of the beauties of adolescent medicine is to work with the teen and their family to make them the healthiest and most productive adult they can be. And if you're in danger, if your life is in danger, you're not going to go there. You know, you're not going to get there. But these are, you know, not as common circumstances. I mean, the most common things are that, you know, a, a, a young person comes into my office requesting testing for STI or birth control or, sure you know, uh, because they don't want to be pregnant. They want to stay healthy. Their friend told them they should do this, you know. So, uh, thankfully, most of the conversations are empowering and pretty straightforward. But you're right. I mean, many times it takes a lot of education and patience. And that's (laughs) P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E. and listening to the patient and their family. I mean, but that's what I love about the field of adolescent medicine. It's really um, very humanistic. I have to draw upon my interest in ethics and, you know, uh, and it really is a very gratifying and doctor-patient relationship. Yeah. And and doctor-family relationship. Right, right. Well, and I think if nothing
0: else that you've said today is that everyone who's listening should make sure that they know what their state laws are. Mm-hmm. In the state of Michigan, I can talk about birth control. I can prescribe birth control. Um, I can do STI testing. Um, we can prescribe uh, mental health. We can, well, we can't prescribe medication for mental right. health disorders without consent, but I could refer them to a therapist. Now, how they would get there and pay for it's a whole nother thing.
1: That's so there's worry, right? And then you so actually uh, had brought up, what about the bill? Like what, yeah. you know, the bill, the EOB, the explanation right. of benefits, that's the more common thing. Um, and that is another state law situation. Insurance law is governed by the states. I know for my state, New York, there is a way for, um, even, you know, obviously the 18 to 26 crowd. To contact their health insurance, ask them not to send an EOB, but it's complicated. Yeah. It's not so straightforward, but states are working on making that easier to be in line with their state laws around confidentiality and also HIPAA in a way. <laughs> but I'm not a lawyer.
0: Well, and I'll make sure that um, we put some links that you mentioned about how to find that information because sure. that's really critical. And of course, all of the reproductive rights and Concerns are a big issue in very state to state for, you know, women of all ages and, and males too. We need to know. I mean, we have to protect ourselves. So there's that. And I guess maybe you can talk just a little bit about as a clinician, are there documents, policies out there, either from the society for adolescent health or? From the AAP that are useful, and, and I'll for sure put those in the show notes. But are there a couple just off the top of your head that you're like, oh, yeah, this would be a go to for you?
1: Sure. I mean, the AAP um, and and the Society for Health and Adolescent Health and Medicine have a, a lot of information for the practitioners, for the, for the medical providers, policy statements around adolescent confidentiality. The AAP has it embedded and a number of statements in clinical reports related. Actually, we just came out with a new hospitalized medicine. I mean, a hospitalized adolescent, but uh, sexual reproductive health care statement. An adolescents' uh, rights to confidential care when considering abortion. These are AAP statements that has confidentiality embedded. Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine has a statement on adolescent confidentiality, but as an important Part of this, the AAP has excellent handouts on healthychildren.org about confidentiality for parents. Um, and as I mentioned before, my New York state AAP chapter came out with an adolescent healthcare bill of rights. Different states have that, but I would encourage people who work in hospital systems or even in your own practice to develop some type of, uh, either electronic or paper handout around adolescent rights around confidentiality, actually, New York State, uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union has teen health cares in the law. It's something that teens could read, parents could read. And I use it, as do my colleagues, to refer to.
0: Right. And I know one of my colleagues, they posted the Adolescent Bill of Rights in the exam rooms. Right. So that, you know, you know, so that both the patient and the parent. And again, it's not to say, you know, the law lets me say whatever I want to say to your child and I don't have to tell you. That's not that. But the the law is there to protect. And I am incumbent to follow the law. Right. Just like if your child was suicidal, it's incumbent upon me to tell you that. But I also need to assure that your son, daughter has access to the best information and resources to keep themselves safe. Right. And, you know, that's my job to be an advocate. And we both want good outcomes for your child. But yeah, it gets sticky. Do you write differently in the chart now? because of the Cures Act, not necessarily on all these things, but are you more mindful, do you think, about what you write?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, personally, you never know how someone is going to interpret what they read. And I can tell you from my style, I went to a doctor last week and I was able to see the notes and the doctor wrote some very nice things about me. So that was like, yay, like friendly, you know, uh, you know, uh, very nice thing. But, you know, you do have to be careful because, again, people may have written things in the past that no one else would see, but could be interpreted by a patient as derogatory. And certainly there are things that people may have written that were derogatory. I mean, you know, hopefully not, but like, you know, but to be mindful that patients, you know, have access and they are reading it and you don't want to use words that are judgmental. Uh, You don't want to critique on someone's opinion per se. I mean, there are ways, that, you know, if someone has marks on their skin because they were cutting, you have to document that. But, you know, in the past, people may have used words like disheveled or not well-dressed. Right. Don't write those things. It's not, right. you know, they're, they chant, they're judgy. You know, there are just ways. It's just not important right. anyway. It actually brings us back to what's important to write in a medical record. Right. Just,
0: just the facts,
1: the, exactly. the necessary information. Right. And on the other
0: hand, you also want, you know, for me, especially if I don't know a patient and I see the patient, you want to have some personal, you know, connection. Right. I mean, these are people. They're not just, you know, a, a vehicle that you're bringing in for, for repair. Right. You know, these are individuals with their own personalities and things. So you, you want to be mindful, but. I think part of it is, you know, perhaps having listened to this podcast is just like, take a minute to think about how what you write, how it's read, about what your obligations are to the patient, to the family, know what the laws are. And, you know, be mindful, but always know who are you serving and, and how do we do that best? So, well, listen, this has been really helpful and I'll make sure that I list resources in the show notes for people that are listening. I always like to close in is to ask if you could go back and give yourself advice when you were a resident, what would it be?
1: That is a really great question, Leah. I think that if I had to give myself advice as a resident, feel like I followed my advice to really pursue your passion and always remember why you wanted to become a physician, why I wanted to become a physician. And not to forget that advocacy, whether it's with the individual patient in the room or on a more regional or national level is part of the role of the physician depends on how much we want to get involved with that. But even the patient in the room with you requires advocacy many times and also to learn as much as you can from your patients and their families, as well as your mentors and teachers. I can't tell you how much I've learned. Um, I mean, obviously, from my mentors and my teachers, but patients and families. And sure, I, I, it's a real privilege, I have to say, when I think about the lifetime career that I've had. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's uh, my favorite phrase is to say, you know,
0: the the joy of medicine is the magic in the room. It's this, these incredibly intimate opportunities we have to be with people who share their most private thoughts and experiences with us and that we are privileged to honor that. And I think confidentiality really plays into that. So, well, listen, thank you so much for the work you do. And I'm so glad that you are a voice um nationally um to you know, be an advocate for kids and their families, and that you know, as pediatricians, this is what we do and what we do best. Absolutely.
1: So, and thank you, Leah, for inviting me um to have this conversation. It's been really great. My
0: pleasure. take care. take care. Boy, is this a sticky conversation and I know that all of you struggle with this. I know I have. So here are my takeaways. Number one, of course, a huge thank you to Dr. Alderman for her time. Number two, individuation is a critical stage of adolescent development and providing confidential care promotes healthy outcomes. Number three, include a head's assessment at each visit, if possible, covering home, education, activities, drugs, suicidal ideation, and sex. Number four, start talking about confidential care or time alone early at the 11-year-old visit. This sets the stage for private conversations with clinicians for patients and parents. That way it just doesn't get weird. Number five, create alliances with parents. And please check out episode number 103 with Dr. Ken Gensberg for more scripting on how to empower parents as partners and not for them to feel that they're being kicked out of the room. Number six, clinicians are tasked with assuring that patients are afforded their legal privacy rights to access care. What is covered under these legal rights for minors varies by state. Number seven, know your state laws. Many states include access to reproductive health care, mental health care, and substance use care but this is very nuanced. The AAP publication outlines current state laws pertaining to adolescent health care rights, and the link is in the show notes. Number eight, electronic medical records pose lots of challenges to assuring adolescent confidentiality. Your voice as a pediatrician matters at the organizational and practice level get to know your IT folks and leaders. Number nine, the 21st Century Cures Act allows patient access to information with three exceptions. Privacy exceptions, preventing harm, in other words, releasing information that would put the patient at risk, and infeasibility, that is, the segmentation of information cannot be assured. I think this one is something we probably aren't as familiar with, so Make sure you pay attention to that part of the conversation with Dr. Alderman. Number 10, consider when information may be released and discuss the process with your IT leadership. You know, for me, this means taking into consideration the after-visit summary, the explanation of benefits, the portal, and all those considerations. Number 11, discuss portal access with patients and parents so that they understand proxy access and rules. Studies have shown that many teen portal emails belong to the parent and not to the patient. Number 12, educate patients on what is in the notes and what others, including other healthcare professionals, can see. No surprises. Number 13, confidential care is healthcare. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll all affect adult outcomes. Discuss with patients what information needs to be shared with parents, that is, suicidal and homicidal ideation behavior that poses significant harm to self or others, serious drug use, such as drinking and driving that could affect others, and of course, child abuse. Number 14, support patients when information must be shared. Offer control about how to tell. You can even role play that. Number 15, encourage teens to talk to parents and empower parents to talk to kids about these sensitive subjects. Again, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Number 16, advocate for teen rights. Your voice matters. Number 17, the AAP and the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine offer materials and articles on adolescent confidentiality, and healthychildren.org is a great resource for parents and patients. Again, these are all in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I just wanted to share a couple of other things. I am very excited about a training opportunity on February 24th, which will be two days after this podcast airs, but still time to sign up, and we will be discussing mental health processes and how to, as I call it, up your game. You can click on the link in the show notes or sign up on my email to join, and there are a limited number of seats, but still a few open. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at l at medicalbhs.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. You can DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown or at Dr. Leah Gagino on Facebook. As always, thank you for all you do for children and teens. Your role is critical and now more than ever, you are the voice for kids. Take care of yourselves and I hope you find time in the day to take a deep breath and honor the privilege of caring for kids, and be kind to yourself too. Please join me next week for another awesome topic. We'll be talking about rare disease and genomic testing, which I know feels like it's a little bit out of the realm of the scope of this podcast, but it is so interesting, and I just wanted to share it. It will air a day early on February 28th in honor of Rare Disease Day. So thanks again, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.